This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. All right, we are now going to enjoy a conversation, I think. Uh, with a sister who I've come to really respect and value and appreciate in so many, many ways. Uh, she is the one and only Dr. Sarah Webb, an international colorism expert helping businesses advance their JEDI missions. She launched the Global Initiative Colorism Healing in 2013 to raise awareness and foster individual and collective healing through creative and critical work. Uh, her myriad efforts to address colorism include designing courses, uh, international writing competitions, books that she's published, teaching workshops, and mentoring students from all around the world and she is back with us today for another conversation on the awfulness of colorism the ubiquitous nature of colorism and how it's impacting uh, subsets of our communities in ways that we should challenge we really got to think about dr sarah webb it's always a pleasure to have you here on the louis daniel favorite show thanks for being back with us today yeah thanks for having me Laurie. and i have to say i love your top i don't know if it's a dress thank or a top but it is super cute thank you this is an uh one of the dianu tops i love dianu.com d-i-y-a-n-u they have a phenomenal uh catalog of clothes i don't know if catalog is the right word but they they specialize in ankara type prints for people who mm. have to work in corporate type spaces so i absolutely love nice. them the only challenge is i sometimes be going places and i'm like that's my outfit <laughs> that's the one challenge that's the one thing that that disturbs me but that just means they're doing well uh because so many more people are are patriots patronizing them and I'm glad for it. Um, I wanted to talk with you. I was thinking about you while I was watching the Chris Rock special. And I thought about pulling some clips from the special, but quite frankly, I don't want to, I didn't want to give airtime to the clips that we're going to be referencing. And as I, I did you get a chance to see it? I, do you, are you, are you familiar with it? I did not. Okay. It, it's not going to be much of a surprise. There's sort right. of a running line of commentary where he's highlighting one, I think it was Draymond Green, highlighting his skin complexion as the punchline. Now, I don't know Draymond mm -hmm. Green. I don't know Chris Rock. I've had a few issues with Chris Rock ever since the Good Hair documentary, which I felt was like, you know how they say if you don't have any medical expertise and you see a car crash, don't move the body. Just make sure you keep your cars away because if your lack of medical expertise could cause more harm to people mm -hmm. who are thrown from their cars. I feel like he had no expertise in that arena and he approached a topic that was too sensitive for someone with no expertise mm -hmm. and he kind of mm -hmm. mangled through it. So I've had issues with him since that point. But, you know, I appreciate the effort. But when it comes to colorism, I thought that I was kind of surprised actually to see this line of conversation in his commentary because there were some parts that I thought were smart of the, of the entire you know, show. There were some parts that were just based and, and not really intelligent or informed or accurate, but there was a, a return to the Draymond Green complexion as a punchline. At least I counted three times and I thought about you as I'm watching and I was like, I wonder what Dr. Sarah Webb would say about this because you've infected my brain, Dr. Sarah Webb. Now, anytime I see colors, I'm like, oh, Dr. Sarah Webb. I see it. I see it. And so your job well done for you. But I, it occurred to me that when we th talk about colorism in our community, we're often talking about the woman's experience. And the first time mm -hmm. you were here, you mentioned that not, nah, this is something that also shows up for brothers in unique ways. So I wondered if mm -hmm. we could unpack that a little bit. And what does it mean to have a, a 50 something year old performer who is still talking about colorism as against a black man, in this good year of 2023, when we've got colorism healing, we've got experts like yourself talking about the dangers of this, what are we to make of this? So let's talk a bit, let's start with understanding how colorism shows up on the masculine or the male side of our community. Mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts about that? 
There's a lot about the dark skin complexion of boys, especially. So I think for a lot of dark skinned men or male presenting people, it starts early in terms of boy boys being judged as also being considered uglier than their lighter skinned or, you know, you know, the boys with curlier hair textures, right? But also a lot of dark skinned boys are viewed as the bad boys. They're viewed as the problem child, right? Or they'll say, oh, he's no good, or he's not gonna amount to anything. And when I talk about how it impacts boys, I refer to an experience I had teaching high school where there were two fraternal twins, right? So two young men, um, same age in the same grade, but because it's so raised in the same household as well. So I think the fact that they are twins is important, but they were fraternal twins. And so one had sort of a medium brown com complexion, thinner features and a shorter haircut. And the other one was very dark skin with full features. And they were on two totally different academic trajectories. Mm. Um, their disciplinary records were completely different. And so you see that manifesting out for dark skin men and boys and that goes into the school to prison pipeline right and so because darker skinned boys are viewed as the quote unquote bad kids or you know the quote unquote dumb child they're also more likely to be fed into that school to prison pipeline and then i also talk about killings of people like alton sterling malcolm um Michael Brown and George Floyd. And I always tell people, you know, they're black men, but they're also dark skinned black men, large in stature with full features. Right. Um, and so we see that continuing in a very deadly way for black men who are darker skinned and who have fuller features is that they are perceived as more threatening. They are considered more violent. They're more likely to be perceived and stereotyped as criminals. Whereas our lighter skinned brothers, um, you know, they, they can sometimes rise to presidency or, you know, be seen as are believed to be more competent. There are studies that show that right, people of all races perceive black men of lighter skin tones as having more education and being more intelligent, regardless of whether or not they actually are. And so when we go to someone like Chris Rock, who, who is himself dark skin, right. what I often tell my black family members, black men in particular, is that when y'all perpetuate colorism, when y'all perpetuate this misogynist war, you're feeding into a system, you're feeding into an ideology that's literally killing you, right? And so for our black brothers who think that they're untouched by colorism and so they can have their quote unquote preferences and you know they can throw black women under the bus, they can throw dark skin women under the bus, you can't separate the negative stereotypes of dark skin just because it's on a woman's body and think it's not also gonna be impacting you in severe ways. That sound we all hear, our toes being stepped on all across the country. Uh, Dr. Webb, I love how you do what you do. You, you mentioned the twins that you were teaching, and my husband had a similar experience. He was teaching at a high school in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and twins, fraternal twins, one light, one dark, uh, and they were from the, a Dominican household. So this wasn't a black American household. This was a Dominican household, and they, they're getting to the unit where they're talking about Trujillo and all of the colorism within uh, Latin America, and these two boys basically said the same thing. You just said, yeah, so I'm the dark one. And in my family, I get more of the punishments. If there's something wrong, I'm going to get the one. I'm the one that's going to get beaten. My brother is not going to get a beaten. If there is some, mm -hmm. someone who's going to get screamed on or yelled at, the presumption is that it's going to be the darker skinned brother, not the lighter skinned brother, even when it was clearly the lighter skinned brother who had contributed to the harm. So this isn't even something mm -hmm. that's just black American. This is an in, a, a pan-African, if you will, yes. challenge and problem. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of folks in the audience audience and, and some folks who have hit me up offline who have said, well, you know, as a darker skinned brother, you got Wesley Stipes, you got the idea, you know, the idealization of who they are and this smooth dark skin and what that means about the mandingo nest of the, all of that. 
what about that aspect of it? Because there are some folks who mm-hmm. would say, well, they get the benefits, though, sis. They get to be seen as masculine men. And then so, but two things can be true. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> so two things can definitely be true. And what we see in terms of the social acceptance are the more likely acceptance of them in the romantic market and the marriage market and the dating arena, that can be true at the same time as them being oppressed and marginalized in a lot of other ways. And so it's true that darker skin, especially in terms of attractiveness, is more acceptable on a male body, on a masculine body. And it's often associated with masculinity, which is why it is negatively impacting women or people who present as feminine or who identify as feminine because darker skin has been seen as the masculine trait, right? So that same thing that makes them more marketable marketable and dating, that quote unquote hyper-masculinity is also, mm-hmm. again, why they're perceived as more threatening or more criminal to the cops. And so it's a catch-22 for sure. And the problem that I'm struggling with, Dr. Webb, is our complicity with this. And, I, and you know, I have my two key questions. How does it free us? Well, given to us by Sonia Sanchez. And then how does it heal the village? And I'm concerned about the complicity that we have as a collective. Hearing this, being a part of the village, being aware that their colorism is an issue. I'm concerned because, Dr. Webb, there were a lot of black folks in them audiences listening to this commentary howling. The Draymond Green uh, commentary and that that running joke got a lot of vigorous response. And I'm wondering what it is we need to be asking ourselves in terms of our willingness to uphold and continually support this type of of dialogue, because it would have been a completely different reality, I think, in the mind of any comedian if they were to do a colorism joke and nobody laughs or perhaps boo. Right. What is our what is our responsibility Mm -hmm. and obligation as people who are Mm -hmm. complicit in supporting this idea as, oh, it's just jokes. It's just fun. Aren't we also responsible then for the harm that's being caused? Oh, absolutely. Because I guarantee you uh, a comedian as seasoned as Chris Rock knows exactly how to get a laugh out of people. Mm -hmm. He's not just trying something out and hoping it lands. He knew for a fact that those jokes would land with that particular audience. And it goes back to the fact that in our household and our growing up, playing the dozens. I think I talked about this on a previous show when we're playing the dozens with each other and we think, oh, let's insult each other in the worst possible ways and leverage all of the white supremacist stereotypes and all of the anti-black narratives that have been leveraged against us. Mm. We're now going to turn that into jokes for for money or for, or for laughs. And I think sometimes jokes and entertainment is a more convenient way to provide programming to brainwash people and to condition them precisely because their guards are down. It's when you're not, if you know someone's trying to brainwash you, you're going to have your guard up. You're going to be like, yeah, nah, I'm not having that. Right. But if they're able to just couch it and say, oh, we're just here to have fun. It's just a joke. Then you let your guard down and it's more likely to seep into your subconscious at that point. But we absolutely have to be willing and you know, because people don't want to be sick, said, oh, you're just being a party pooper or like why you're taking all the fun out of it, you know, but you got to be willing to be that person sometimes who's going to mm. put a damper on everyone else's fun by saying, yeah, that ain't funny. Yeah. <laughs> but how do we make it not funny? Let's 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 can we can let's let's have an honest conversation, because the first time mm. I heard it, Dr. Webb, I will confess I snickered. I did because it, it landed. Mm. It, it hit the punchline. I felt instantly guilty afterwards. And I checked myself, but I snickered. Dr. Webb. And so I just go, I'm just being transparent. How do we make mm. it not funny? 
Like, how do we unearth that part of us that still finds our oppression and, and centering whiteness at our own expense humorous to us? I got to figure that part out because I need to be able to hear something like that and not have to squelch the urge to laugh. I need to hear something like that and be so appalled and, and disgusted by it that the entire energy of the room shifts because of just because we wouldn't joke about the Holocaust that way and get a laugh. It would completely shift the intent. And, and I don't like doing Holocaust comparisons to blackness, but come on, people like we wouldn't laugh at that. We wouldn't. And the same way in movies dealing with enslavement. I hate when there's a punchline that people are laughing at. I never laughed once in Schindler's List. I find that I'm struggling with how to not have a, a sense of humor that is still titillated by appealing to white supremacist yearnings and ideas that I'm still trying to unearth within my own self. Notice the audience. I'm saying me. I don't know what y'all doing in the audience. I'm just trying to have a. It's just me and Dr. Webb having a transparent conversation. Maybe this relates to what you experience, and maybe you don't. I'm just saying, Dr. Webb. Mm. I don't want to find it funny anymore, mm. and I'm struggling with that part because I felt I felt yeah. guilty about that. Yeah. So one, I I want to acknowledge you for being transparent because that is a big part of where it starts is that self-awareness because we can't fix a problem we're not aware of. And so the reason why I tell people that self that self-reflection piece that, you know, self-review, like let's actually look at my receipts. Let's look at my track record. Let's mm-hmm. look at my patterns of behavior. Let's look at my patterns of speech. Right. So that I can actually know where I stand on this issue. That is a first step. And so you're already like leaning into that process by just saying one I see it and the other part that not enough of us get to is I also don't like that I do it right Mm -hmm. so so many people are able to get to the part of well yeah I see that in myself but I'm okay with it I'm comfortable with it and so a lot of it is that the status quo this is how oppression is persists because they make the status quo just comfortable enough Mm -hmm. just comfortable enough to where even though it's you know, low key killing you, you're not going to put up a fight, right? I think we can compare to the analogy of boiling a frog in water. If you start the water off cold and just gradually increase the temperature, the frog is going to sit there and let itself be boiled, you know, to death. Mm -hmm. And so for us, America has appeased us with entertainment. Well, look, black folks, y'all get to be on stage and you get to have a representative, oftentimes a token representative who gets to make a lot of money making you laugh. Isn't that progress? Haven't we come Mm -hmm. so far? And so we have to realize that um, I think part of it is continuing to expose ourselves and continuing to see it and call it out because that's how we're going to change our tolerance for it right so we built a tolerance for colorism one because too often in our community Lurie, we swept it under the rug and we haven't been able to talk about it mm-hmm. so i think starting to talk about it starting to call it out and having more people call us out right and having maybe a friend in your life who is going to call you out is going to start to sting more and more and you're you're going to see your tolerance start to shift for it because mm-hmm. like you mentioned the holocaust you mentioned things like slavery those things that culturally and that our larger black community has seen as negative, right? If, if a white person was using the N-word on stage, we would be hypersensitive to that. Right. But that's because we've continued to call it out as a community. So the more our community starts to call out colorism, people are going to start to get the message like, oh, okay, yes, no, this is something that is a problem, right? And so mm-hmm. I think we're, we have to keep doing that work. And it's okay if you're not there, because, you know, I think it was a panel that Ibram X. Kennedy was on. He's like, you can't be born in the ocean and wonder why you're wet, right? Yep. So we we were born into these systems. We were born in this culture. It's understandable that we have colorist biases, but I think we have to have that self-awareness, have the desire to change, and then mm. keep holding each other accountable. 
that's one of the reasons I'm glad we, we've been able to sneak you in once a month since the year started. Cause I'm like, well, let's see if we can just keep it going because I, we need to have these conversations at the forefront and we, we need to have spaces where we're able to elevate this because one of the, the challenges I now have is I'm thinking about what you're saying. How are we supposed to protect dark skinned black boys? If this is the ethos, if this is the ocean that they're swimming in, what can we be doing now to protect them? Because I don't want another crop of black boys having to grow up to overcome the wounds and the injury. I might, when my, my son is now 16 and when he was in elementary school, friends with two beautiful little boys, beautiful, rich, melanated skin. And they went through hell and they were at a predominantly black school. And so I don't want us to have another, I, I want educators to know when you hear colorist things happening in the classroom, the same way if you heard someone using uh, the F word slur against someone in the gay community in a classroom, we know, uh-uh, we ain't doing that. If you were to hear someone being made fun of for having a disability, we don't do that. But if you hear a colorist joke, it slides so under the radar, the teachers might even be snickering if it's said in the right way. How are we supposed to protect black boys who are navigating life in this ocean in a, a body that is so richly melanated that the rest of society has been trained to see them as sharks and predators while there may be guppies, they may be little bitty baby guppies who need our love and who need our protection as much as and maybe more so anybody else. Mm. So I think that is a important intersection between colorism and patriarchy, right? And so because boys in general are taught to be tough and taught to not cry and Damn suck it up and be a man, right? Then when we have a dark-skinned boy, especially when we talk about people um, like uh, Frank Ocean or uh, what's the other really popular um, queer rapper? Oh, Lil Nas X. Old Town Road, Lil Nas yes. X, right? <laughs> you know, because they are dark-skinned men and they have full features, right? I think people take an even greater offense to the fact that they have more feminine demeanors, right? Or that wow. they are queer at all. Yeah. And so we have to give dark-skinned boys the full who allow them to be in their full humanity right and regardless of gender identity regardless of sexual identity it doesn't matter they should be able to cry they we have to know mm. that they feel pain just like everyone else we have to know that they are just as capable and then thinking about um when we have boy dark-skinned boys and dark-skinned girls in a classroom especially with african-americans we see the projections a lot, right? And this yes. is whether it's in a classroom or within your family, whether it's your nieces or nephews, the children that live next door to you at your church community, whatever. We have to see that sometimes a dark-skinned boy will reject a dark-skinned girl and a dark-skinned girl might reject a dark-skinned boy right. because they are experiencing colorism and they're trying to cope with that. And so affirming just like we want to show dark-skinned girls beautiful images of themselves, we have to show dark-skinned boys beautiful images of themselves as well and tell them that they're beautiful. We have to tell dark-skinned boys that they're beautiful, like you're gorgeous, you're handsome, right? But also you're smart. Also, yes. you have been well-behaved, be well right? Because that could kind of skew to respectability <laughs> politics. Right. <laughs> but you know that you um, are capable and that you can accomplish something. And so we have to be as mindful to affirm them because you know, I talk about how hurt people hurt people, but hurt people can also heal people, right? Which is why I started my platform because I was hurt by something and I decided to turn that into a healing process. And so when we have dark-skinned boys who grow up to be men, like a Chris Rock, we have to, as parents, as adults in those children's lives, we have to ask, you know, where did we drop the ball for those young black boys? Wow. 
and and I like how you framed that. Where did we drop the ball for those young black boys? And I, you know, my when my my husband has a lot of stories that he shares with me from his days in education. And there was a, a dark skinned brother uh, who happened to be in his class, and and Brian didn't have like a whole lot of interaction with the with this student. But at one day he told this. He must have said something along the lines of, "Yo, you a really smart brother." And then went on because you know that's how Brian does. Years later, this brother sees Brian on the street in front of Boys and Girls High School in Best Eye, Brooklyn, and basically says to him that that moment has never left his heart because he was the, my husband was the first teacher to ever tell him he was smart. This is a kid in high school, right? The first mm. teacher to ever tell him he was smart. And he was already dealing with a whole host of other issues because our kids have a lot of issues. But the fact that you saying we have to tell black boys, you're beautiful, you're gorgeous, you're smart, you're intelligent, you have so much potential. It feels kind of trite to hear, but the fact is they don't get a lot of that mm-hmm. messaging. And even if they're getting it from a source, it is often a source that's speaking against the whirlwind of oppressive messages that they're getting Mm -hmm. from other spaces. Dr. Webb, let's say I'm a grown-ass man. Say I'm a grown man, I'm in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, and I have been Mm -hmm. dealing with the negative implications of colorism my whole life. I'm a richly melanated man in this case, and I'm thinking in particular, one of the other hosts on this channel, we call her our architect, Karen Hunter. She talks a lot about her father, and he himself was a dark-skinned man, and I heard her say on her show a few weeks ago that he refused to purchase a black car because he was so, he felt that it would be negatively affiliated with his skin. He refused, he would put uh, cream on his ears because he felt like his ears were too dark. If you're 50, 60, 70, some odd years old and you're still dealing with the wounds of colorism that may have started when you were a baby but continued throughout your entire life, what does self-healing, beginning the self-healing journey look like? You created an entire platform, which is amazing. Everybody is not Dr. Sarah Webb. If I am in that body and I am in and I am a black man navigating these hurts and wounds, which quite frankly, I may not have even admitted to myself prior to prior to hearing Dr. Sarah Webb come on and talk about it. How do I begin my healing process if I'm showing up yeah. in that way? Yeah. So my first thing is I want to put out a call to other black men to create more spaces where they can hold space for black men, because I also understand the limitations of me being able to do that work for black men, right? Or with black men, even in terms of having grown up in a woman's body and having that experience, I can speak to it as best as I can, but I think there's nothing like black men joining me and doing some of this colorism healing work, I think we need other black men, other dark skinned black men to also be at the forefront of colorism healing specifically and not just racism writ large. Mm. Um, Cause I think that, I think a lot of black men will need that representation for themselves. Um, and in a way that they might just not, they might just not respond to me, right? It's, it's not yeah. gonna land the same way of me saying certain things. And so one for our brothers who are in healing professions and who are inclined to talk about colorism anyway, continue and to grow your platforms. Um, But for others who are looking to do their healing work for themselves, a lot of it is similar in that you have to, one, it's just like I talk about it like almost like it's a 12-step program, right? You have to acknowledge that you have the wound. And again, look for the relationships. And I think this is really important for men. Look for the relationships, if hopefully you have at least one, where you can be vulnerable, right? Where even as a man, even as a dark-skinned Black man, this is the one person in my life where if I cry, if I feel like I can't do it, if I acknowledge I've been hurt, they're not going to judge me. They're not going to shame me. They're not going to say, oh man, that shouldn't bother you, you know, toughen up, right? Mm. Um, 
And if you don't have a space or a relationship like that now, I say that could be your first priority is to start to look for a person or a space or even a resource that sees you. Yeah. Even it sees your wounded inner child as well. Mm. Um, and then to the extent that you have relationships and contexts in your life that reinforce colorist narratives, just like I would tell a dark skinned woman, you have to be willing to remove yourself and to reduce your exposure to those relationships and to those mm. contexts, right? Maybe you change barbershops. I don't know, right? It's going to wow. be different for everybody. Yeah. But you have to um, start to kind of take charge of what you're allowing to be your, allowing yourself to be exposed to and actively seek relationships, resources, spaces, and contexts that are more affirming of your full humanity mm. and not just the projection of what people want Black men to be. Whew, sis, we got a lot of work to do. Like yeah, so lot. much of our work is often outward facing and protesting. But if we're serious about how does it free us and how does it heal the village? I feel like in a lot of ways and feel free to, to decide, you know, I'm curious about your perspective on this. I feel like in a lot of ways, most of the healing work has nothing to do with what they do. Like if they if they on the outside of our community were to never, ever change the healing work, the most impactful and, and paradigm shifting work, it feels like that's on us because they gonna do what they're doing. They've been they doing it. They've been doing it. They ain't gonna stop doing it. Am I missing something? Am I am I am I not landing properly? What what do you think about that? No, I love that you said that. It is profound. And when I work with you know my small groups or with my one on one clients, I always tell them you know for for healing something like colorism is not like a one and done surgery. It's more like a daily hygiene habit. So you know why you have to wash your hands every day? It's because your hands are going to get dirty every day because the world Ooh. is a dirty place. Mm. You have to brush your teeth regularly because the world is a dirty place. You consume food, you breathe air, things are going to get dirty. And so that's what it's like to heal from colorism, to heal from anti-Black oppression, the legacies of colonization that we have in inherited as Black people is that, yes, the world is going to continue to be dirty, aka continue to perpetuate colorism. And so we have to have practices for ourselves where we can as an analogy, wash our hands, take a shower, bathe and clean mm. ourselves from the, the grime of things like colorism and racism in the world. And I agree that it is revolutionary to do your own work because also a lot of black people feel like if we're in this healing process or if we're advocates or activists, we have to like be serving everyone else. But what I've been talking to my people about is if you are, if your only form of activism is healing yourself as a black person, that is revolutionary. Mm. And I tell people our ancestors, you know, when we say, oh, I'm my ancestors wildest dreams. It's not just about like driving a brand new car and having a big house. Our Oops. ancestors wildest dreams was to be able to go to sleep when they wanted to, was to be able to sleep late, take a nap. So if you're doing those things, you are doing like something that our ancestors couldn't even dream about, right? Yeah. Especially those of us in the diaspora yeah. who have endured the legacy of slavery. And so with healing ourselves, we are changing the fabric of our communities. And I don't, mm. I don't want that to be lost on people. That is so important. And, and as I'm thinking about the hand-washing analogy, I'm reminded that a few years ago, I'd come, I'd been mulling over this concept. We, we usually do these things called Sankofa circles. It's a project that we began like when I was in college. Uh, shortly after college, we started this organization, Sankofa Community Empowerment, based on work that had been done at our at Penn State. And it's basically a therapeutic 
conversation model that takes black participants because you got to be black identified to be in the space. We don't care if you like skin, dark skin, well, or anything in between, but you have to identify as a descendant of Africa. Um, and that means no white people allowed. It's a safe space for black people. And basically <laughs> we would, uh, we have to, the same like, you know, we, we need safe spaces for women and safe spaces for men. We need safe spaces for black people. And basically we would go through a self-collective root responsibility model of questioning that would take us through those four categories to unearth whatever the particular issue of that day was. Now we were younger and had no kids and mortgages we would do it every week as we age it, it reduced to once a month but it occurred to me that we were creating basically an Alcoholics Anonymous but for black people who were addicted or impacted by white supremacy and you mm-hmm. mentioned the 12 steps and it feels like if we are swimming in the ocean of racism we need not just a one moment of clarity or healing, as you pointed out. We need an ongoing therapeutic model that will allow us to decompress. And I know that if I if I am struggling with the disease of alcoholism, I can go online and type in Alcoholics Anonymous and anywhere in the country I can find a 12 step meeting that day, often many mm-hmm. times a day. Mm-hmm. We need something yep. like that for blackness <laughs> we, no, mm-hmm. no no wrong said wrongly we need something like that for black people who are trying to navigate blackness in white spaces and i just mm-hmm. you know it's an addiction to a drug that are not of our choosing uh, but we are stuck we're not stuck we are in a space where white supremacy has so infected our dna epigenetically that we need yes. that constant hand washing mechanism so i need to know that when i get off of work i can go online and type in blackpeoplehealing.com and find my 12-step place where i can purge clean myself my soul and my spirit from the wounds that i have encountered by navigating hostile white spaces so mm-hmm. i don't have the capacity or time to flesh that out anymore if any one of you out there have the ability it's a free idea run with it make it work uh but dr <laughs> webb i am so grateful for you and don't don't worry audience we're gonna have shayla reach out to dr webb to see if she can come back for april because i feel like we need a, at least once a month we need another dose of the good ghost of healing from hey. the wounds of colorism dr webb how can people follow you connect with you and and learn from the work that you're putting out there that is so very necessary for this time yeah so colorismhealing.com and at colorismhealing on instagram are great places to start great places to start y'all she does great stuff i've been following her on instagram she do it she do it well she does it we appreciate you dr webb thanks for being with us today. thank you